Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up, making things happen. Um, love talking to creative people, and this is kind of a special episode. This is a revisit of a previous podcast guest, Derek Hartley from Derek and Romaine, the radio show, and uh, you can learn about that at DerekandRomaine.com. Um, Derek and I are old friends, and his podcast, uh, his radio listeners said they really enjoyed him on the podcast, so... Um, getting to turn the tables a little bit. So Derek said, why don't we just do one that's all me doing the observation deck? So that's what we're doing. It's Derek Hartley and the observation deck, and uh, enjoy. All right, hey there, I am still in a Disney... I'm going to start again. I'm going (laughs) to... But we'll just pretend that didn't happen. I'll edit it out. What's it? Majestic Anaheim? The Anaheim Majestic Hotel. Hey there, I'm here in the Anaheim Majestic Hotel, which is... Tricky to remember because you want Majestic to be the Majestic Anaheim Hotel. Right. With Derek Hartley. It's me. I am Derek Hartley. A radio host of the show DNR, Derek and Romaine 2.0, formerly of Sirius. Now, Derek has been on the show before. I am a returning champion. You're a returning champion. <laughs> and when you were coming out to California, you, you called me and you said, or you texted me and you said, I want to do a podcast where it's all observation deck. Yes. That's all we're going to do. So I'm going to throw these at you. Some of these were probably catered to like actresses or whatever. So That's okay. I, in my head, I am an actress. So <laughs> fine. So if there's any, you can pass or whatever. Okay. All right. Here we go. All observation deck. Derek Hartley. Boom. What did you get picked on for as a kid? Uh, I got picked on for being smart. Uh, the only time I ever had uh, trouble with another kid, I was in maybe the fourth grade, fifth grade, something like that, and a kid, like, on my way home from school in Utah, in Salt Lake City, nice, clean, safe Mormon Utah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some kid, uh, I was walking home with another kid, and I was getting A's on all the tests, and he was failing, and... Uh, I was walking home with another kid, and he rode up on his bike and, like, leapt off his bike and grabbed me from behind and started, like, punching me in my stomach. And the thing was, I was uh, I was never the tallest kid in my class. I was always the shortest kid in my class because I started school early, and um, he was still a head shorter than me. He must have been two feet tall. So, anyway, <laughs> so it was somewhat comical that he was sort of, like, yeah. trying to grapple me, and I was too big for him because I was not a big kid. Anyway, that was the only that was the only thing that I really got picked, got on. picked on. I um, I really had a, like a smooth sailing kid, childhood. I reserve the right to take an observation deck answer and go with a follow up. Oh, that's fine. My yeah, follow up right. is growing up in Salt Lake. Were people constantly trying to get you to be a Mormon? Uh, we had. I had a. Um, my my dad had a sister in law. His brother had married a woman, and they had like. She had seven sisters or something insane. Uh, the only thing I really remember was there was a lot of women around, and they had a pool. Right. And I was jealous they had a pool. Right. Anyway, they were really fun, and um, she had a sister, Teresa, who would babysit for us. And she I, it was me and my sister, Tiffany, who's 17 months younger than I am. So we're very close in age. And she would babysit for us, and she would tell us, oh, if you go to Sunday school, I'll bake you cookies. So we went to Sunday school and we shellacked the Mormon temple onto a block of wood. Dennis is laughing because like, oh, I remember that. And then, and then we would come back and there'd be no cookies. She'd be like leaving the magazine and the watching old, a soap opera. The old bait and switch. Yeah, and so we were we were on to her. It's like, all right, well, we're not coming into your religion if this is how it's going to go yeah. down. But we had a we had a there was a temple across the street from our house in um, Sugar House, which is a neighborhood in Salt Lake City. And um, it was directly across the street 
from us like a couple of doors down and people on Sundays would park in front of our driveway so we couldn't go anywhere we would wake up and the driveway would be blocked because Mormons in my background would not have parked in front of somebody's driveway but it was like everyone was Mormon it was a free for all there was nowhere to park they would park in front of your driveway because obviously you live across the street from the temple you're not going anywhere you're not going anywhere yeah and so it was a nightmare. It's like we couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't go to have breakfast you somewhere. You couldn't go sin. You and couldn't you, go out and sin. Right. And who are we going to call? The the police? <laughs> Can you believe these Mormons are blocking us? It's Utah. It was it was so Chinatown, right? Um, yeah. All right. Well, that was that was uh, a, a great podcast, Derek. Thank you so much. <laughs> I know. After we had a two parter that was so long last time. Now our first question. I forgot is, like how everything's long. I know. I'm terrible. I'm okay. Too if you could be the opposite sex for a day what would you want to experience oh my god uh i think uh i speak for all men when i say i would just be a horrendous slut like i think <laughs> you know just find the hottest like construction worker marine whatever yeah. and um you know wear pretty things and yeah. be pretty and then wild men with my feminine charms yeah because it's not working for me as a man but maybe as a woman maybe that as would a actually, woman you could score yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like, think, like those years when Madonna, it felt like Madonna was fucking everyone. Yeah. Like that. Like that time, Backup that Backup dancers. Yeah, whoever. Chauffeurs, personal exactly. trainers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what project have you worked on that has been the most underrated? Um, I, I mean, I... I <laughs> uh, at the at the risk of sounding more like an asshole than I did the last time I did your podcast, um, I, everything. I always feel like everything I do is underrated. Um, we always talk about how... Um, we can never crack the at 100. Did you ever crack it? We did. Romaine you and cracked I, it. Romaine and I were like 99 and 100. Like, <laughs> yeah. literally, we were on the last page and we were together. Uh, but no, we, look, we were in the at 100. We won a GLAD award. Yeah. Um, but even still, like, we won a special recognition GLAD award. It was us and Tyra Banks and Phil Donahue. And we get there and nobody wants to talk to us on the red carpet. Like, we are no one. And... And so it's this humiliating thing that happens because, you know, I I have this theory about fame, that fame is just a series of humiliations and your willingness to be humiliated dictates how famous you can become, like the level you can achieve. Like some people will get more famous, like you'll want to be more famous, you're willing to be more humiliated, Uh, you're Lisa Renna, like you're willing to do everything, (laughs) but it only gets you so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But... Ultimately, there are people who reach a breaking point where they say, you know what? I've been humiliated enough. I'm Demi Moore. I'm moving my kids to Idaho, and we're going to have, like, a normal life. Yeah. Uh, And so I think that um, there's always this – you have to just accept that if you try to put yourself out in in the public eye in any way, you will be humiliated because that is the bargain. And so – I mean, I accept it, but I'm very unhappily. (laughs) You're still always a little shocked by it. Yeah, so it's this thing, like, you win this award, and it's kind of a big deal. You think it's a big deal. It's a big deal for you, and then you get there, and everyone's like, I don't care about you. It must be what it's like to go to the Oscars and win the Oscar for best best sound effects editing. Of, like... Oh, you're the thing I go to the bathroom during. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's so great. You're the pinnacle of your career and everything, but everyone's waiting to fast forward to see Gwyneth Paltrow. Like they don't, they don't care about you. It's got to be frustrating. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. What was your worst audition? Uh, <laughs> okay, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an actor, but I did, when I was in high school, I did school plays and everything. And when I was in my freshman year, we were doing a production of Harvey. And there were 
The show has seven male parts, I believe, something like that. And there were eight men who auditioned, and I didn't get a part. That hurts. That's yeah. gonna hurt. <laughs> so, I don't know how good or bad I was. All I know is that was it. I was yeah. the odd man out. Which have you been more, the dumper or the dumpy? Oh, uh, probably more of the dumper. Although, most of the time when I've been the dumpy, I've been relieved. I am the kind of person that, I'm unhappy here, so I will create a situation where you can't wait to get away from me, and then I'll be like, well, that was not my problem. Like, obviously, they just had to go. Yeah, you asshole, how dare you break up with me? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any scars or tattoos with stories? Um, I don't, I mean, I have a, I have a small scar on my leg that I got at, um, my grandparents' house, like running in the yard. They had a, like a metal pipe sticking out of the ground right around the elbow of the sidewalk. And, uh, I guess it had had like a sprinkler head on it at some point and then it was long gone. And I came tearing around the corner, running into the house or something, and just like scraped the whole front of my leg Ugh. on it. It was kind of nasty. And so there's still a little bit of a scar there, but the um, the great scar, scar story is um, when I was about two, um, my parents were trying to keep me entertained, and they had this, like a bar stool seat, and so they were spinning me around on it because I loved it. You know, I'm like two. And then they set me down on the ground. And then I was like wobbling around. And they thought that was adorable until I fell over and hit my head on a credenza. And there was blood like pouring out of the oh top of my, my head. Oh, my God. And they were convinced that they had killed me. Because like I hit my head and then I'm like yeah. motionless on the ground. And there's just blood. Because, you know, any small head injury, there's just yes. blood. And so I did have a like a hairline scar. Um, but my hairline has moved a little since then. So now it's just a part of my face, but, um, but there used to, I used to be able to tell, I could tell actually where my hairline was moving because I knew where that scar was. was, Yeah. I was getting closer and closer. I just love that you use the word credenza. (laughs) What's the funniest way you've ever blown a take? That's kind of an actor camera thing, but you were, you've been in some films. Uh, I have, I did some extra work. Yes. Um, perhaps in an adult film. Uh, oh, yeah, I was. Yes, I did that. I didn't blow, as far as I remember, well, I didn't blow anything in that, but <laughs> I don't remember blowing a take either, but I um, I did some extra work. I was in Ed Wood, and um, I was also in The Mighty Ducks Part 2, okay. but I was completely cut from The Mighty Ducks Part 2. So with The Mighty Ducks, I had wanted to be an extra in Ed Wood, and then I got this call, like, oh, they need to be an extra, and I thought I was going for that, and then I show up, and it's the Mighty Ducks. I was like, oh, well, I didn't want to be in this, but I'm yeah. here. And it was one of these things where I got there at the beginning of the day, very early, and there were 300 extras. And as the day went on, they were releasing people as they were shooting things, and finally got down to, it was me and one other extra. And we had, like, a featured scene, and there was a whole thing going on, and we were like, the shot opens on us walking along the campus thing, where me and a girl and we're doing a romantic thing and everything. That got cut. Everything got cut. Like, everything shot that day was cut. I, they could have... I don't know what happened. They just threw everything away. But anyway, um, the take that I ruined, though, was we were shooting Ed Wood. I know how Dennis is like, you're, you're telling the story second, but it's all right. Um, but I love that you ruined a take in Ed Wood. Oh, I did. Well, I... Okay. Nobody noticed, but now I'll tell you about it, and yeah. then you'll, you'll see it. So... 
we were doing Ed Wood, and I was a dress extra in Ed Wood. They cut my hair, and I had costumes and the whole thing. Because when they do a period thing, there are extras that are way in the background to, like, fill space. But then if the camera's going to be close up on people, they need to be period. So even though it's an extra, they still, like, they put they makeup and hair, up, yeah. and they do all that stuff. So I was a dress extra for Ed Wood. And um, so I was in several scenes. I was in the, the premiere for Plan 9, uh that we shot downtown and um, like that clip of Johnny Depp running down the aisle. You can see me in that. Like I was watching the Oscars and went, Oh my God, that's me in the background. It was very exciting. But uh, there's a scene from Ed Wood that people will remember. And it's at the wrestling match. And Bill Murray is talking about his sex change operation and how, um, and during it, he's eating a hot dog. And I was kind of way up and back and away uh, from where the scene was going on. And they shot, that scene, I can't even remember. A lot of times. I don't right. want to... It's one of these things in Hollywood where it always is like... It was 75 times, but right. it wasn't. But maybe it was like... Let's say it was 17 times. I think it was closer to 25. But it was a lot of t- takes. And the thing was is that Bill Murray was eating a hot dog during every take. And so... A fresh hot dog every a fr- time? A fresh hot dog. They would bring in a hot dog and he would do the scene and he would oh eat the hot God, dog. Oh my God, he must have been so grossed out. Yeah. And so they get to like take 17... And then uh, the director yells, back to one, because they're going to do another take. And all of the extras groan. And Bill Murray stands up and turns around and says, I'd like to see all of you eat 17 hot dogs. And then turns around and sits down. Dead fucking silence. Anyway, so I'm way up in the back and I'm far and away. Like, the camera is so far away. And I think, oh, the camera can't see me. And then when I watch the movie... I'm wa- looking away. Everybody else is watching the fake wrestling match, and I'm just staring off at the scene. It's filthy in here. What's happening? So if you watch the scene, you're not watching for me. You're watching Bill Murray eat a hot dog. But if you look up and to the left, way up in the corner, you'll see everyone else is cheering, and I'm just wandering away. I so anyway. love that you have amazing stories for every one of these tough questions. Well, this is Dennis. Dennis has said this about me before. Like, you could just throw out a word yeah. and I will have some story about whatever it is. So this is why I, I want to go and watch that this, now. This, it's so badly. I know. There you what go. What kind Edward. of driver are you? Uh, not great. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I learned to drive in Southern California where 100% of people have to drive, which means people are not great drivers. But I live in a town in New York now where the drivers are even worse. Like they're, I can't believe how terrible they are. But uh, I'm not a great driver, but I, you know, I haven't crashed into anything and I'm you know I'm not that bad but I'm not what I would consider an ultra skilled driver but I'm a very good parker oh that's good to be yeah so you know it's kind of like those things where you can cook but you can't bake or you can bake but you can't cook it's like that I'm an okay driver but I'm a great parker love it who would you like to collaborate with professionally oh uh I'm gonna pretend like I'm one of the real housewives I'm gonna say the person I really want to work with is Meryl Streep yeah. Um, that always kills me when people are punching above their weight with the yeah. people that they want to collaborate with. Um, I mean, I, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, those kinds of things I think would be great. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I wrote a screenplay and it won an Oscar or, yeah. uh, I wrote a TV pilot and it got picked up and, uh, some big star decided that they were going to do TV and it was great. And, you know, all those, those kinds of dreams all come true. The Ryan Murphy uh, yeah. Although Ryan Murphy, eh, whatever. I, have a I lot just of- read the cover of Entertainment Weekly, and at the end, he's like, "My dreams have come true." Like they really have. They really have. It's like 
Wow, God divides. But I, you know, I, you know, I have a lot of beefs with Ryan Murphy shows. Yeah. In in terms of their consistency from episode to episode, um, but I don't think there's anybody um, who comes up with better ideas for shows and better casts for those shows than Ryan Murphy. Yeah. I think he's a terrible showrunner. I think that the wild inconsistencies of the shows as they go week to week is a, like a horrible problem. I wish he could get like an amazing showrunner to work with him. But like, pound for pound, he comes up with these ideas and they're incredible. And they Dude, tap into the, the zeitgeist of how yeah. people are feeling. And he has done great work. And, you know, there were episodes of Glee that were some of the best things I've ever seen on TV. And then the next week, it was like, what is this garbage? That was the way the finale was. Like, the first hour was like, oh, that was really great, really satisfying. And the second hour was like a, just a shit fest. Yeah, so I don't know what that is. Yeah. If he, like, made a deal with the devil and this was, like, the fine print. But, uh, anyway... Uh, that has nothing to do with me and who I, I know, want to collaborate with. Yeah. But th- those are my opinions about Ryan Murphy. Anyway. Uh, what's the coolest thing you ever got for free? Um, uh, <laughs> I had a crap. really dark thought. What? Herpes. <laughs> Everything comes at a price, Dennis. <laughs> um, I'm going to pass, but I'm going to come back to it. Like, okay. we're oh, on I the love pyramid. That. We like have rules. Pyramid. We're making rules. I know. All right. What's your idea of the perfect day? Um, one where I don't have anything to do. Yeah. I am just the laziest person. And when I was a kid, I never wanted to play outside. I wanted to like sit in my room and read a book, be quiet. And, um, you know, my mother let me do that. Like I was always kind of like a loner kid and I'm, and the thing is like, I've always been like a 80 year old person. Well, I don't want to go there. Yeah. Well, I don't want to do that. Only I'll eat the car. same thing every day. I'm fine. Yeah. You know, oh, don't bother me. I'll just be here in my robe, my turban. And so the thing is, as I get older, I'm just sort of growing into myself more. Uh, but, um, yeah, a perfect day for me is coffee on my patio, and I'm reading the New York Times, and I'm in a robe, and I don't have anywhere to be, and no one is calling. And Are you I, reading it on paper or digital? Oh, I love reading on paper. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Take it old school. What movie have you seen more than any other movie? Okay. Um, This is hard because... I feel like we did this one before, and I feel like it might be Postcards from the Edge. It probably is Postcards from the Edge. You know, I, I, I have a lot... I love movies, and I see a lot of movies. When I was younger, I was like a super Hitchcock person. Right. You know, I was one of these teenagers who goes through a hardcore Hitchcock phase. And, um... Uh, and and a lot of what people like, I think, in movies is about, like, the time and place of their life that they saw yeah. them. Like, you know, we're both obsessed with Xanadu. And yeah. I... But it's only because I was 10 yeah. when I saw it. Like, it's the perfect movie to see when you're 10. It was just I the remember right the headline from the Arizona Republic. <laughs> Xanadu spirits you away with video flair. <laughs> And you know what? It damn right it did. It did do that. It spirited us away. But for some reason, there's this. So there's this. Um, as a as an adult person, there's this this place between Postcards from the Edge and Defending Your Life, with these two Meryl Streep movies that are kind of back to back. That are the two movies that I pro- that probably speak more to me as a adult person than almost anything else. So, I mean, I love National Velvet. It's the movie I cry to. That's like my go-to cry. I can cry in every scene in that movie. Yeah. Um, and I love uh, Rear Window. And, uh, I, you know, I just love a lot of different kinds of movies. But 
those are the ones, like if I'm sitting around the house like, oh, what am I going to watch? Uh, I'll pop in Defending Your Life or Postcards on the Edge any day of the week. Love it. What's the most bullshit thing a suit has ever said to you? Like a, an agent or a boss or a, you know. I, I, I wrote that question because I once interviewed Luke Wilson, who said that this one agent told him that he was the cornerstone of young Hollywood. And I was like, uh, that's bullshit. That's like a bullshit turn of phrase. Well, I have a, of course, it's a Hollywood thing. So I worked at Sony Pictures. And when I worked there, we had just the absolute worst string of movies that almost any movie studio has ever had. It was bad. I could rattle off some of the names of them and you would say, oh my God, Jesus Christ, really? Yeah. Those were all the same studio all at the same time. And so... Um, then I, do it. I worked in motion picture publicity and we would do the movie premieres. And when a movie premieres, there are uh, seats set aside for the stars, for executives at the studio and everything. And the seating is assigned based on how close you are to the star of the movie. If you're the chairman of the studio, you're in the same row with Angelina Jolie or whoever the star is, right? And so, uh, so if you're an executive vice president, you're closer than a senior vice president by like a row, right? That's how it works. And I was at the studio, and we had the premiere for some god-awful movie. And it could have been anything. Race the Sun with Halle Berry. Could have been Mary Riley with um, Julie Roberts. Mary Riley. Well, I'm convinced, you know, the, the whisper <laughs> campaign of that, I'm convinced, what, was born out of people working on the movie. Oh, what are you working on? Oh, Mary Riley. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'm surprised more people don't do that. Because we remember it. Yeah. It's effective. It's kind of effective. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, don't breathe. <laughs> but it was terrible. So anyway, so he, so I get a call from an executive and he says, I'm furious. I was at the premiere last night for Screamers, whatever the, cra- so many crappy movies. I was at the, I was at the premiere Screamers. of Mrs. Winterborn. Mrs. Winterborn. <laughs> and, I um, think every movie should be like Mary Riley. Yeah, I know. But like whatever it was, it was one of the, one of the many <laughs> terrible movies. And he goes, I was there and sitting one row behind me was the senior VP of home video. And I am a senior VP of movies. And I should have been one row closer to whoever the star is, right? And seriously, like a five-minute-long tirade about how close he was in centimeters to the star based on this video person. Meanwhile, like the home video division in 1995, 1996, was the only thing... It was the only thing making any money. And and I just wanted to say to him, you know, if you cared as much about what was on the screen as you did where your ass was in the theater, maybe the movie wouldn't have sucked. Yeah. But, like, I would have been instantly fired. Right. That would have been a good moment. Yeah. But instead, I was fired, like, two months later but even still like the it just the it was yeah what were you supposed to do about it let me turn back time right but but also it's like this this is what you care about yeah well that's very hollywood and that's why they make terrible movies what's the best time you ever had in a limo uh i was in tucson arizona for a pride event and i was there with doria biddle from the frank DeCaro show and some uh somebody who listened to the show had wanted us to to come to some bar like oh i'm the manager of this bar i'll send a car for you if you'll come and i was like all right fine because we didn't have a car i was like well i don't have a car i was like oh i'll send a car for you 
So Dory was there, and she wasn't doing anything. And Frank was off doing something else with Jim. So it's like, oh, well, why don't you come to this bar with me? She's like, all right, fine. You know, we'll probably drink for free because this bar manager is sending a car. So we're there at this whatever motel we're staying in in Tucson. And this stretch Hummer shows up. (laughs) And it is the biggest vehicle, like physically, the biggest vehicle I've ever seen in my life. Like bigger than a plane. It's so big. That we get into it and they can't turn it around in the parking lot. Like, once it gets into the parking lot of the hotel we're in, it can't get out again. And it's just you two. And it's just the two of us. And it's literally like, hello, hello. <laughs> we're, we're like bowling echoing. on the way there. Yeah, we're echoing through the thing. So I'm like taking pictures in the, in the back of this cavernous limo with Doria. And I call Romaine in New York. Because I'm like, Romaine, you won't believe it. I'm in this world's largest limousine with Doria. And she says, I'm on stage in a lesbian bar and I'm naked. Wow, you just got trumped. Yeah, and I was like, oh, well. You win. <laughs> right, exactly. Have fun. How, how long was the limo ride? Was it like 10 minutes away? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was super yeah. close. And then it was like, we have to keep this idling outside. It probably did more to um, accelerate climate yeah. change than anything yeah. I've ever done in my your life. Your footprint? What do they call it? Your, your My carbon footprint. Your carbon footprint. Yeah, it was like yeah. a dinosaur. <laughs> Where's the weirdest place you've ever seen your own image? Somewhere you weren't expecting. Uh, uh, oh, I might have... Uh, I might have to pass. Yeah. I see. Like, That's a movie star question. Because I'm not, but I'm also, I'm used to, like, my image just sometimes shows up places. Yeah. Although, I, I mean, probably the place I was most surprised is that somebody, somebody was using my photo, was sending around my photo in an AOL chat room saying it was them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was one of these things where somebody steals your photo and yeah. then they pretend it's you. And so I wrote to them and I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm really flattered because I'm 32 and you said I'm 27 or whatever yeah. it was in the picture. But, you know, that's my picture. And um, please stop sending it around. And the guy wrote me back and he goes, I only send this picture to uh, guys that I don't want to have talk to me anymore. Um, and oh. so I sent him oh, this photo. Shit. And I was like, all right, you know what? Well played. But fuck you. Stop <laughs> using my photo. So I guess that's my answer. Oh, my God. That hurts. I know. Ouch. But I was like, I don't believe you that that was your, what your, yeah. your thing was. But still, good way to dig good it Good comeback. Yeah. Here's my AOL question. <laughs> do you remember when AOL had celebrities doing the You've Got Mail uh, login? Yes. Because I downloaded the Reba McIntyre one. <laughs> and she'd go, you got mail. And Tony, my roommate at the time, would just hate it because it was so Reba. Right. And I think Madonna did one. I don't. Do you, I just wish I had those. I'd Joanna Lumley did one from AbFab. Yeah. There was a bunch of them. I, this is the one thing that is kind of ups, upsets me about being a, you know, for lack of a better word, like a digital pioneer. Like the, you know, what we worked at AOL and we would labor over the what was on the screens and things like who was doing the You've Got Mail thing and everything. And the reality is all of that stuff is gone. Yeah. Like, you know, if you make a movie, like, let's say you made a silent movie, and a lot of silent movies were lost, but there were plenty of silent movies that weren't lost. Yeah. And now nobody's made real silent movies in almost 100 years, you know, 90 years. But even still, you could still get it if you wanted it. But the thing is, it's like, who's going to ever see the pages that people built for the Lyco search engine or pets.com or, or what, like, do you got mail. Yeah, all that I stuff wish is, I had that. Yeah. All that stuff is gone forever. Yeah. So I think that Gen X is going to have like a crisis when they get to, you know, their sixties where they're going to turn around and realize oh, wait, wait. all of now. their, all of their pop culture 
disappeared. Yeah. Like, it was, everything they thought was important to them is gone. Yeah. Like, it never lasted and it's disappeared. Well, that's what's going to happen with the, the, the millennials, too, with all the YouTube stars and all that. I guess well, that except those videos, online. right, those videos, yeah. like, so much of our media now is self-generated and then self-stores yeah. versus before where it was all pushed to us. Right. This, these are the things you need to care about. These are the right. stars you need to care about. But all of that, all of the things that people wrote and the art that they created, all those things, it's all gone. Gone. Yeah. Gone, gone, gone. Yeah. All right. Are you a good flirt? Um, I only, only when I don't want to sleep with someone. Right. Like, if I know I'm not sleeping with you, I will flirt with you like crazy. Yeah. Like, if I know there's no chance, yeah. then I'm all about it. But if it's somebody that I actually really want to sleep with, I'm like, no, I can't put myself out like that. Yeah. But I did have an awkward situation where um, a friend of mine in New York... What, he showed up at a bar and he had uh, two guys with him. And uh, I work at radio. I don't. I don't hear really well. And then it's loud and what have you. And um, he had a guy who was staying with him. And it was it was one of these things where he had flown to L.A. and he met a guy and he slept with him and um, it went great. They had like a great whatever two days. And then a couple of months later, the guy was coming to New York and he was staying for like five days or something. And it was like, oh, this would be great. You know, we had this great time, whatever, a couple months ago. And he shows up, and literally two hours into it, he's like, oh, crap. I really don't like this guy. And so he's now I'm your stuck picture. with him. And he's, and he's staying in my apartment, and he thinks we're going to be yeah. sleeping together and everything. So, um, so he gets there, and it's like, oh, here's this guy. And, um, you know, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of him. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll just flirt with him because... There's no harm here. He's cute, but I'll flirt with him. And um, uh, if he goes home with me, I have solved my friend's problem, right? But I don't want to go home with him. So I can flirt with him all night. But my friend is not going to get upset that I'm, like, trying to steal his man. So it's like, this is the perfect flirt scenario for me. So we're there at the bar. We're hanging out. And we're flirting. And he's flirting. We're taking cute pictures together and all this kind of stuff. And it's getting kind of late. And he's like, um, uh... You know, well, uh, you know, uh, let's go. Uh, oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. We're there and we're kind of flirting. And I said, um, you know, so how long have you lived in Los Angeles? And he goes, I don't live in Los Angeles. I live on the Upper West Side. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and it turns out that he had come with two guys, but I was flirting with the wrong one. Oh, shit. I was flirting with an intern in his office. Yeah. And so this guy was like, well, let's go home now. And I was like, oh, wait, no, I was I was only flirting with you because I thought I was going home alone. Yeah. But I had been so aggressively flirting with him that I couldn't, like... You had to buy the I, I had to go. I had to go back, go home with him. So I went And was home it okay? Yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. But like we were in the taxi and he was really drunk and he was like, Oh, what uh what what do you want to name your kids? I wanna have five kids, blah 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 blah. It was like very aggressively like we're married now because we're going home in a taxi. Thank God when he sobered up he realized he wanted nothing to do with me. But that that night in the taxi it was like, Oh my god, yeah. this guy naming kids. You know, yeah. I, I flirted too hard. Yeah, you flirted too hard. It happens. <laughs> How did you learn the facts of life? Oh, God. So, my mother... Uh, well, there's, there's like two stories. So, when I was in the second grade, my mom got us uh, where babies come from, right? And there must have been some kind of coordination with the other parents. And... Um, So all the other kids, we all got where babies come from, like, the same weekend. And so we all convened on the playground 
like that Monday, and it was the hot topic of conversation. All, all of us were talking about it. So we're all talking about the book, and then one of the boys, this is all boys, and one of the boys says, well, my next-door neighbors are two men. If it's two men, how does that work? And then wow, all, all of so us are, like, very quizzical, like, you know, what the... You know, because we saw the whole chickens and everything, and, like, but there you know, it was a boy chicken and a girl chicken. Like, how is it with two guys? And when he said that, in my head, I thought, when I grow up, that's going to be me. Right. Like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a fireman. Like, it, as soon as it was articulated what it was, I was like, I knew that was me in the second grade. Wow. So that was really the facts of life thing. But later on, when I was a teenager... My mom found, like, a safer sex guide, like, various sex acts that were considered safe or not safe, like, ranked by risk level. And she made a copy of it, and she put it on the refrigerator. So it wasn't such a much a conversation as it's just, like, this, you know, Martin Luther-esque uh, list of sex acts on the refrigerator door. So you'd go to get a snack, and like the first thing you'd see, like your eye would just catch rimming and fisting, and be like, "Whoa!" Yeah. So yeah, that was the real facts of life. Yeah. I love that. Okay, what's the worst costume or uniform you've ever had to wear for work or something? Uh, I really, I you know, I had to. I had retail jobs out of yeah. high school, and I had to wear a suit. And now I just associate the misery of retail jobs with suits. Yeah. And so now. I mean, you've hardly ever seen me in pants. I'm yeah. always in shorts. I really don't like to dress up because I just feel so hemmed in and like the, all the miseries of those kinds of terrible corporate jobs. And so even now, if somebody's getting married, because I've given speeches at people's yeah. weddings, uh, and uh, that's, the speeches have gone much better than the weddings, not unlike my own. But anyway, uh, but now like if I have to get into a suit, I instantly start sweating. A suit or a tuxedo, I just... Okay. You, you know, oh, I can't. I feel you like too. I have to claw it off me. Yeah. Have you had, ever had a good diva tantrum? Oh yeah, I have a terrible. I have a terrible temper. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Everybody knows that about me. Uh, my co-host Romaine would tell you that we had some fight with our boss about something, and I, you know, I, the problem is I have my mother's sense of righteous indignation. Yeah. Because my mother is like a. Norma Ray standing on a box holding a union sign up. Like, that's her level. Like, if there is an injustice in the world, she will not rest until it is over. And, uh, but she's a much sweeter person than I am. And I just, I have this terrible, mean, sarcastic, bitchy personality. So my righteous indignation comes out much more like a scene from Dynasty. Like, bad, you know, like it's way over the top and dramatic. Uh, But I don't have diva things about, like, you know, how come this water is room temperature? I asked for it to be cold. Like, I don't have any of those kinds of things. But if I feel like something is wrong, like if there's some injustice in the world. You were saying something about your old boss. Was there a moment? Well, yeah. I mean, we were, like, we had a thing, and it was about our show. And I thought our show deserved whatever it was. And this is the thing. I don't even remember what it was. But I was, like, yelling. And Romaine was just like did you ever, frozen. Did you throw something or like no, no, I didn't. Door? No, no, no. Yeah, I didn't. I, you know, I didn't throw a stapler at someone's yeah. face like certain Hollywood producers. But yeah, um, 
No, I just was like, I was very passionately like, this, the art show needs this, and I don't know why we're not getting this, blah, blah, blah. And our boss, who was this very easygoing suburban guy, like, he started to get, like, a little tense, like, all right, you know, knock it off. But it was, like, a personal thing. I was just really passionately advocating for the thing. And it wasn't, he didn't hold it against me. I mean, I think he really liked us a lot, but... You know, yeah, I've, I thought something was important. I was not going to let it go. There you go. Yeah. Um, what's your best random celebrity signing? Uh, I was in it uh, when I worked at Sony. We were in. We did an offsite because we would do the special events things, and so one of the things we would do like corporate offsite things. And we did one at Shutters, this hotel on the beach, in Santa Monica, and we. We just had, like, a conference room, and we had to pass out packets with pens and that kind of thing. And so I got there early to help unpack the thing, and I got into a, uh, an elevator, and Ann Richards, Governor Ann Richards, was in the elevator. And I was very excited about that. And um, uh, so that was, I didn't say anything to her because I was like, oh, it's Ann Richards. She was the queen of the, like, the one-liner. Yeah. Like, she was good at that stuff. That's exciting. Yeah. But when uh, but I was also at Sony, we did the... We had an after party for the Golden Globes. I think you might have told this story before. Did I? Did I no, 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 no not Cole about Colin. No, no, no. That was another. That was a juicy night. Yeah. No, this is about that Merv was a Griffin. Juicy night. Did I tell you the Merv Griffin story? I don't think so. Okay, so I got there early. He probably wanted you. We had this terrible. We didn't get the A plus suite because the studio wasn't sure how our movie was going to do. We had one good movie that year, Sense and Sensibility, and Nicole Kidman was up for To Die For, but uh, To Die For had come out before I started the studio, but. Um, and then after I got there, it was like just terrible movies, but not Sense and Sensibility, which is terrific. But uh, anyway, so once Sense and Sensibility got all these nominations and Nicole Kidman got nominated, then it's like, oh, we need a we need a suite to have a party at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, which was owned by Merv Griffin, R.I.P. And uh, so we had a studio, we had a suite down the hall. Like the main party was the Paramount party. That was a Tom Cruise party uh, that was in this lavish suite that had a beautiful grand piano and a gorgeous view of the beach. And then we were in just a standard old room with a kitchen in it down the hall. And so I got there early and I'm in my tuxedo and I have like a boom box because this is how sad it is. Like, oh, well, we'll bring a boom box. We'll like play some music in the corner. Yeah. They've got a string quartet at yeah. the Paramount party and we're, we've got some, you know, chips and salsa. So yeah. I get there early with a boom box and uh, I had, was told by the front desk that the room was open and to just that I could just go on up. So I get up to the room and I get there and the door is locked. And so I go down cuz it's a suite. So there's like three doors. So I'm trying all the doors and they're all locked and I'm down way down at the end of the hallway and then I look over, I start to leave and I look down the hallway and here comes Merv Griffin. And Merv was fat. And so <laughs> he's taking up quite a bit of the hallway and they, he's flanked by two other people, like office people. And so they're taking up the entire hallway. So I'm trying to become invisible, like sliding down the hallway past Merv Griffin. Because first of all, I'm like rattling on doors in a hallway and I don't have a key. I don't have any identification or anything. And I just, I don't like to ever be in trouble. So it's like, I've got to get away from Merv Griffin. I know he owns this hotel. So I'm getting down the hallway (laughs) and I'm trying to get past him. And Merv basically like steps in front of me, like body blocks me, which he could do without stepping much. But he body blocks me. And he's like, um, who are you here with? So I'm here, I'm here with Sony Pictures. He's like, where are you going? He said, well, I, uh, isn't this your suite? And I said, yes. And he, uh, I said, but the, the door is locked. I'm just going to go down and get a key. And he goes, oh, no, I'll let you in. And then he goes, let him in. And so this guy scurries around from behind Merv and like goes and opens the door. 
And I said, oh, thank you. And he goes, let's take a look at your suite. And he, like, puts his arm around me and ushers me into the suite. And, of course, I, you know, now I'm a cat with a white stripe on his back in a Pepe Le Pew cartoon. Like, I can't get out of this embrace fast enough. And uh, so we get in the suite, and um, he goes, looks good, looks good. I am going to make a lot of money tonight. And turns around and walks out. I love it. Do you think he was fresh on you? Sweet on you? I mean, he didn't, he didn't, like, you know, do anything. He didn't, he didn't give any sign. He didn't invite me to his ski chalet or anything. But you never know. You never know. Maybe. All right. What's the most embarrassing CD in your collection? Oh, uh... I have a shit ton of Partridge Family. I mean, I have... And all of their CDs were named after whatever you got for free in it. Like, it was up-to-date, had a free calendar, and shopping bag had a shopping bag. Notebook had a notebook. That's pretty terrible. Yeah. I just, I have, I just have a lot of really random CDs. I have a lot, I went through a techno period in the early 90s, and I might have a dance mix, a techno dance mix of the Phantom of the Opera that was sung, it was like a Japanese singer, and so her pronunciations, like I don't think English was her first language or her language at all. So her pronunciations of some of the words are off. Uh, but I enjoy it. But it's terrible. And it's not the kind of thing where it's like, oh, anyone's ever going to want to hear this again. Like, yeah. I'm the only person on earth that wants this or has it or cares. So let's, let's go with that. I like and that. I'm, That's a good I'm answer. Terrible taste in music. What's the most unprofessional behavior you've ever witnessed? I mean, aside from my own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you had to see some shit at Sony, right? Or at Sirius, or... Uh, I mean, pro... pro uh, I... Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the most unprofessional thing I just have to say is that I have worked for a couple of places where there are a lot of gay people. My, my feeling about gay people, as a gay person, is that gay people are like salt. A little makes it better, a lot ruins everything. Right. <laughs> and this is why you can have one gay person at the office and they just magically make everything better. And then you get 40,000 gay people together and all they can come up with is, you know, a bunch of tacky t-shirts with rainbows on it. Like they yeah. don't, like you, you would expect, you know, how is it that we have the greatest designers in the world and yet when we come together collectively, we can't do any better than straight people can Why do. are there so many gaps in the parade? Yeah. We so, have all the choreographers in Broadway. Right. Yeah. Why is there 20 minutes between dykes and bikes and the fucking Bank of America float? Right. It, see, this is exactly the same. So, anyway, uh, but when you work in an office with a lot of gay people, you will, uh, gay men, I'm saying, you will see all of them naked at some point. Either their sex tape or their nudes or their dirty personal or they'll be on grinder at the office. Like, you can't, you can't work with other gay people, like many other gay people, and not invariably see them naked. So that happened when I was at Planet Out. It happened at OutQ. And I, it's the one thing I don't like about working with gay people. I want to have a professional relationship where I'm not, I'm not going to accidentally see you naked. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's too much to ask. Somebody that I dated for a while that I met through you used to have this thing in their office called Dick Day. Yes, where he would whip out his penis and show it to people. And I used that in my book, Misadventures in the 213. And the character in the book ended up being like a a jerk to the my protagonist. Right. So I said for some people every day is Dick Day. Yes. And but I that's so funny that we remember Dick Day. So there's that. What do your friends worry about with you? About me? Yeah. 
I uh, I don't know actually that my friends do worry about me about yeah. anything. I don't That's think good. I'm a, a healthy person. I don't think I'm a source of concern. Yeah. Um, but I fell down the stairs a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I put my foot through the wall to like break my fall. Yeah. I think that when if you asked any of my friends if they were worried about anything, it would be dying alone in my house. Yeah. Like, you know, falling down and Doing not being able to call for fancy, help. Yeah. Like the kind of the kind of worry you have about an eighty year old person. So right. that's it. That I choke alone in my house. What, who's been your most surprising fan? Oh, um so <laughs> When when we have the radio show, we would hear all the time from publicists, oh, so-and-so wants to come on your show. They're a huge fan. And the thing is, you have to believe 100% of the time that that is a lie. It, because, I mean, sometimes it is true. But the reality is, publicists are there. They need to get their client on there. They'll right, say whatever right, right. it takes. Better to be surprised yes. by the truth than go, hey, yeah. I understand you like the show. And so sometimes people would say, oh, they're a fan of the show. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, right. And so we wanted to have Alan Ball on the show to talk about True Blood because we had loved Six Feet Under and everything. And the, you know, he was booked on the show. And then the publicist said, oh, he's a big fan of the show. He listens all the time. And I was like, Oscar winner Alan Ball. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure, he's listening to our show. All right, fine. And, like, I didn't believe it. And so I just let, let it go. And then he got on, got on the air with us the first time. He's like... I'm a huge fan of your show. I listen to you every day. And I was just like, oh, I guess actually in this case it was true. Uh, but it was nice because it was like a mutual thing. It wasn't like, oh, we're having this person on and I, oh, everything he does is crap. And then he loves us. I'm like, oh, great. Now we're in a corner. It's like, no, I totally respect you. You're this super talented person who has made this wonderful entertainment that has enriched our lives. And the fact that our show has given anything back to you is the greatest thing ever. Um, so I would say that. Um, and there were a couple of other p- people that also think that I had a lot of respect for that would listen to the show. And I mean, I thought that was totally neat, but it's also kind of surreal. Like Rosie O'Donnell would listen to our show. And so that was very weird. Um, would she ever call like, in? She seems like the kind of person uh, who would call in. No, Rosie never called into the show, but she would listen to the show I think it was because the time our show was on, she would wait when she was waiting to pick up the kids at soccer or whatever. Yeah. Like our show was on at that time. And so then invariably the kids would get in the car and it would be our sex toy talk. And then yeah. the kids would have to listen to Romaine sputtering on about some sex toy. Um, but a couple of years ago, Rosie's ex, um, Kelly Carpenter, came by with their youngest, Vivi. And... Um, uh, Vivi was, like, really shy, and Kelly said, oh, well, you know, she's, you know, she's shy about meeting you because she's heard you in the car so many times, like, you're fam- you're famous to her, and that just was so weird to me because, like, you know, her mother, Rosie, is... 5,000 times more famous than I am. Like, uh, but it, uh, but it's also like how, the, how fame is completely relative, yeah. you know? And so, um, so yeah, so that was a little bit weird, but it, but invariably, you know, that's, that's whatever. That's there, there's a certain amount of log rolling in our time as Spy Magazine used to say, uh, with this kind of thing, but it's, it's better when it's somebody like Alan Ball or Rosie where, you've already been a fan and you really respect them. And then it turns out that they've actually ever encountered your stuff. And it's like, oh, I'm so relieved, you know, I, uh, when my book misadventures in the two, one, three came out, 
I went into Book Soup to sign stock because I would go to any bookstore and sign copies. Like, right. That's like I was such a little uh, hustler. And the the cashier said, guess who was in here yesterday and bought three copies of your book? And I was like, who? who? Elton John. <gasps> oh, my God. That's amazing. It's amazing. He was the first album I ever bought. And uh, and I wondered who they were for. I liked it. I thought one was maybe for Donatella Versace because I think Gianni had just died. Right. And I thought maybe the other was for George Michael. I don't know. I just was like, that was crazy to me. I, I, and maybe it's true. I mean, she told me that. I can believe it, right? Yeah. I can, you know. Um, if you could relive one day from your childhood, what would it be? Uh, I had a, I mean, I had a really happy childhood. And. But is there one that was so, such a great memory that you would like, oh, I'd just do that for fun. That was so fun. When I, uh, when I was a kid, I, I called into a radio show and I won tickets to see Star Wars. Oh my God. And I was whatever, seven or whatever. And we drove to San Francisco and my other friends, Maury and Dylan, they also won tickets and their mother, Barbara was my mom's best friend. And so we all, and we didn't have a lot of money. And, and so we all drove to San Francisco as we were living in Sonoma County and we went to like a radio promoted screening in San Francisco for Star Wars. And I mean, I was obsessed with Star Wars as a kid. And that was pretty great. That's like, amazing. That's like, that was like the nexus of all the great things. You win something, and it's the thing you love, and then you're there with your friends, and, like, it was all the things. Well, plus it would be so interesting to see it, to relive it now, given what Star Wars is, means to everyone, and just, like, to go back in time. Like, that's yeah. amazing. If you were going to be in an infomercial, what would the product be for? <laughs> um, I... Uh, I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Wow, you're really letting me down. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've really been like I've passed on so many questions. Well, here I'll put it aside. Put along it with aside. The coolest thing you ever got for free. What was your favorite or most memorable birthday? Star Wars tickets you got for free. Oh, that's true. All yeah. right. Well, let's say that the okay. coolest thing I ever got for free were those Star Wars tickets. So that's Yay. a two for yeah. Yay. Okay. What's the, what was your favorite or, or most, most memorable, memorable birthday? birthday? Well, I had. Um, uh, I'll tell you the the sweet, sad, and the terrible. So I had a sweet birthday when my ninth birthday. My mom was dating this guy, and he made me a mobile, a Cloud Nine mobile, and it was like my favorite cartoon character. He hand drew it and made this thing, and the very top it was Cloud Nine. It was like a cloud with like a rainbow on it, and um, for my ninth birthday, and it's long since lost the ages, but that was pretty great. Um, that was a happy birthday. And then I had a, like three years later, I had a birthday party and no one came. We had moved to a new town and I invited like our old friends from the old town and whatever. They were 11 or 12 and they didn't drive. So they didn't come. And then I was at a new school and all of the kids, like I told the story of like, Oh, it was my birthday and nobody came. And then they were all like, if you had invited me, I would have come. What's wrong with you? And so, anyway, so that was kind of sad. But the worst was, for my birthday one year, my dad sent me a, a calculator. And it was the free calculator you get as a gift of purchase with a subscription to Time Magazine. It was like the Time Life right. thing. And uh, that was pretty low 
I was very unhappy about that. I was not in a great place with my dad at that point. But, yeah, that's but a getting a, a bullshit free giveaway gift for your birthday, it, it sucked. That's not good. No, it's not good. What are you good at that might surprise people? Um, I, uh, well, I mean, I just assume that everyone thinks I'm amazingly talented at everything. What are you, what are you there saying? You come. Uh, I, um, I mean, I'm really, I'm really good at um, the two things that occupy my time the most, which is probably why I do them. But genealogy research, I am a crack history detective. I could be, like, they could reboot Murder, She Wrote, but it's me finding people's long-lost dead relatives. Like, oh, I've worked the shit out of that. And uh, and then um, booking people. Like, a, I'm a born travel agent. Yeah. I have such a good, like, Tetris sense of where to put people on the boat and who to match people up with and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, I'm so, and I'm so fast. You know, I know Romaine was on here talking about how slow she is at it, and she is not lying. I am so much faster than she is at it, like night and day. How do you do? Do it over the phone, or do you do it when you book people? When you yeah, I mean, you like they send do in they their do info. It yeah, yeah, they send in their info, and then you know, I have to talk to them on the phone and whatever else, and put it all together. But it's just a lot of. You know, it's boring grunt, like data processing stuff, which I know is like an old term, but like you just have to take their information and suck it in. And But also it's a bit like having a dinner party and like doing seating yeah. at the table, figuring out where, where people are going to fit best and how to, how to arrange it, like that part of party planning, of uh, the people, people part. What's the voicemail that you played more than once? I... Um, I was dating this guy who was like a intern, he was like a resident, a doctor. He was so hot. And he was fluent in French and Italian. And in bed, he would speak French to me, and then sometimes he would speak Italian. It, it was crazy hot. And uh, I sent him, it was his birthday, and I sent him flowers from this florist that we would use for... Uh, at the movie studio, we would use this florist in Culver City, C.J. Matsumoto. It's a fantastic florist, incredible arrangements. And so we would use them all the time to send flowers to celebrities and whatever else. And since I worked there, I was like, oh, can you put together an arrangement for me to send to my boyfriend? And uh, they were like, how much do you want to spend? And so I was like, $50 or something. And then I got off the phone, and this woman I worked with, she's like, do you have any idea what kind of arrangement they're going to send over right now? I was like, why? What do you mean? And she goes, well, you, they're going to want to impress you because they want our business. So right. they're going to send, it was ridiculous. So they must have sent, like, your horse won the Kentucky Derby. Like, <laughs> a ridiculous arrangement. And it went to the hospital where he worked. Yeah. So I'm sure, like, a, a tanker truck pulled up and unloaded, you know, all of the flowers in the world uh, into the nurse's station there. Anyway, so he, he sent me this, like, he left this lovely, lovely voicemail message to my, like, I came to work and there was this lovely voice, like, oh, I can't believe these flowers and they're so beautiful and everything. Uh, oh my God. Sexy I, accent. And he was so, no, no, I mean, he was like, whatever, American, yeah. but yeah, he just, oh God, everything about him is perfect. Uh, but anyway, no, and then we, it didn't last much longer than that. I'm sorry. I, I think I scared him. I think the flowers were too much. It was too much? Too many flowers? I'm pretty sure it was too much. Yeah. If there was a doll of you that talked, what would it say when you pulled the string? Something bitchy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Speaking of which, are you watching my... Finding Prince Charming? 
Starring Robert Sepulveda? Yeah. Um, yes. So that show is terrible. But what's terrible, <laughs> what's terrible about Fighting Prince Charming? Uh, I don't know when this is going to air. I assume the show will have like wrapped up and everything by the time that happens. But what's terrible about Fighting Prince Charming is everything that's terrible about gay men. All in one show. Like the subtle racism, the subtle... Or not so subtle um, insistence on looks over everything else. Well, it's so funny because you look at the poster and you're like, okay, he's the first to go, he's the second to go, he's the third to go, yeah. and you hope to God you're not right. But of course you are. <laughs> you're totally right. And I was like, come on, keep one of the you know ones that aren't super hot for the you know he's good in the interviews. Yeah. Hold on to one of them. Yeah. The worst part about the worst part about the show is the delusion that. Anyone is a good person. That, oh, I'm, I'm doing these things for the right reason. I'm letting him go early because I'm just not feeling any chemistry. And this is for the best. I don't want to string him along. Right. And it's like, well, you could have done that. You could have stepped out of the limo, walked in, and been like, there's only three guys here I would fuck. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is that's exactly what happened. <laughs> So, really, you are stringing everyone along. First of all, you act like there's a limo. There's not a limo. No. What is this, Tucson Pride with yeah. Derek? No. And by there's the way, a- don't even get me started on the stupidity of the tie. If there is a second, if there's a second season of Finding Prince Charming, I will guarantee you they will do something different with the tie. Because the problem... Okay. No, Remember- here's, my, here's my take as a, from the TV producer point of view. Yes. The tie idea was a placeholder until they could think of something better. And every day they would come in and there would be at least a 30-minute meeting to come up with that other thing. And weeks and weeks went by, and it's the tie thing. Because they never came up with anything better. Um, I think the problem is that somebody came up with the idea of calling it the black tie affair. And they got and, hung, and they, and they let it were go. like, nothing's, nothing's better than that. So that so pops. The, the prob- black tie affair pops. Yeah. So the problem with the tie was, well, first of all, the putting the right. So for people who are not watching this crap show... <laughs> That on the first episode, if he liked people, he would put a tie around their neck. And it was super creepy. Like he was putting a hangman's noose around them, right? Yeah, but I love the idea of like at the end, I'm going to have to have my tie right. back. But he doesn't really take it off. I don't, it's so... They did, well, the, they did show the first time he took someone's tie off of them. And it's such an aggressive, like I thought the... Give me that fucking tie back. Yeah, I think you they, fucking ugly yeah. average dude with a good sense of humor. I thought that the putting the tie on was like this creepy, because it really, I think it was supposed to look romantic, putting the tie on, but it looks creepy and aggressive, but the taking the tie off is much worse. And, but the worst part about it is, as bad as that is, that he tells people, keep the tie on. And so they have them, like the Bachelor style, there's eight of them up on a platform. Yeah. And then what, they'll come up and they'll go, okay, you can keep your tie. And then they go back. So you don't know how close they are to the final two or three. They keep cutting back and it's just everyone standing there in a tie. Yeah. So it's like, you can't tell. It's like, you wait, can't remember who doesn't you know, have a right, tie. Who doesn't have a tie or who got yeah, to yeah, keep yeah. a tie. It's, that's bad television. Yeah. It reminds me when they rebooted The Bionic Woman. 
They, I know this, you're going to think, like, this is crazy. So they, got, they rebooted the Bionic Woman. They're like, we're going to get rid of all the cheesiness, the cheesy da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da things. Right. And um, when she uses her bionic hearing, we're not going to have her move her hair away. Like, yeah. you need, oh, this hair is blocking my ability to bionically hear. But what they discovered with the reboot was if you don't, if Jamie Summers doesn't pull her hair away, how do you know she's bionically listening? Yeah. Like, there are certain things you have to do in television. There are signals you have to give to the audience so they know what's happening. Right. And so this is the problem with the tie. If they're just wearing the tie, every time it cuts back, like, this is like... Somebody's film professor who was their teacher is like, I have failed. Like, whoever yeah. came up with this, because it doesn't work. It doesn't track. No, it doesn't track. It doesn't track. I also love the budget cutting things. Like, we're going to have a date, and one of you's going to have the appetizer. <laughs> one of you's going to have the entree, and one of you's going to be the dessert. So we could, we could save some money that way. That said, I love that the show exists, and I love watching it. And I also love, like, reading all the bitchy things that gay guys say about it on social media. Because somebody could come up with the best gay dating show ever. Oh my gosh. Something just exploded at Disneyland. Oh, fireworks. Fireworks. All right. We'll wrap it up soon. Yes. Somebody (laughs) could come up with the best gay dating show. They could do it as well as you could do a show like that. And still, there would, you know, everyone would hate it. Yeah. There's no pleasing this audience, is my point. No. Not in a million years. That said, I'm rooting for Brandon. I think Brandon. Uh, is the cutest, and I want him to do it. I also um, like the hairdresser that's really... Eric, yeah. Eric, he's really beautiful. Seems nice enough. I met The Bachelor uh, at a party. The the Robert Sepulveda. So this is really... It's so dramatic. It's so dramatic. <laughs> um, we're very close to the park. But anyway, um, no, I met him at this launch party... And he was really nice. And, you know, when he looked at you, I thought I thought maybe there was a chemistry there. Maybe there was a bit of a spark. But did uh, you end up in the friend zone? I, I, I totally ended up in the friend zone. But my favorite thing that happened, and I told this story on this podcast already, is I was with my friend Glenn, and we were in a little group. And he went to the bachelor, and he goes, can I steal you away for a second? <gasps> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I don't care that he was a hooker. It's fine. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I don't I, care. I love how uh, outraged a lot of gay guys are about that. No, I, well, first of all, I don't think we should be putting down sex workers at all. No. And I think as soon as he said he was a successful interior designer in Atlanta, I think we all knew that that meant sex worker. But, <laughs> but the real, the funniest thing to me was in the very first episode, in the first three minutes, the widower comes in. Cutie Pie Widower comes in. And then the second person to come in is Eric, the Cutie Pie hairdresser from Los Angeles. And the two of them are on the best first date you've ever seen. Yeah. And they brought that bachelor in so fast. He was sprinting in there (laughs) to break up that first date. Yeah, I want to. I want some of the also rans to just fuck. Oh yeah, because I think that's what's going to happen. I, I actually think so. that the widower and Eric, like, the they have so much chemistry. The widower's out. I know. Yeah. I was. So, I was surprised. He was with that. too perfect. Yeah, well, he was obviously he was too fussy. He wouldn't get his white shorts out of the gym. On the gym floor. I was like, oh, but he also life. said the thing of like, I told my trainer I don't care about using my muscles to do anything. I just want to look. At it. I was like, that's gross. Yeah, but they're party arms. Like that's what. He's not lifting a car off a baby. But, but to, oh, to say it out loud, there's something gross about that. Except Jesus. it's the truth. I, it's, uh, we don't want the truth. I know. I know. I love it. 
All right. Um, let me see if there's any others that you want. This Why you hear the booming? I know. I, know. I want. Maybe I want we'll wrap it up. We're not under siege in Aleppo right now. I know. Now. Exactly. We are actually. In What's it? Aleppo? Oh, Get it? I did that. Uh, oh man. What's your favorite bad movie, Derek? Um, I mean Xanadu. Yeah. Okay. Uh, obviously, Xanadu is pretty terrible. Oh my God. Jesus. This is. <laughs> I th- I first thought actually that somebody was pounding on the door because we were so loud yeah. in here. <laughs> yeah. Do you collect anything? Um, I, uh, uh, n- not really, but I do have an eBay box of things from my movie studio days that I, it literally says eBay box, but it's crap from the movie studio days that no one's going to want. Like, That's we the thing. About, we talk- I have eBay on my list of things to do, and I right. have all of these things that I think somebody's going to want on eBay, and it's going to break my heart to find out that I can't even... You know, buy a six pack of Diet Coke with the money I would make from them. Well, I have a bunch of AOL start discs. I have like AOL things because I realized that a lot of people did not save those things and they will be worth something in the future because the rest of AOL is gone forever. So the mouse pads and the start discs. The start discs. Those are the only things to be worth anything. And then from the studio, I did save stuff from the crappy movies that nobody cares about. So I have some jackets from Money Train and, uh, (laughs) <laughs> We're popping Jesus. popcorn in here. I know it's really loud. I know. Um, but the best is I have a Mary Riley sleep shirt. Oh, yeah. And Mary Riley. <laughs> I love that you have a, a Mary Riley sleep shirt. And I just, I have this fantasy. I have this fantasy that I run into Julia Roberts. And I'm just like, I have something for you. Because <laughs> we have the same birthday. That She's two years older than me, I think. But yeah. we, have, we have the same birthday, October 28th. And I just, I, if I ever meet her, I'm going to be like, this is just for you. Yeah. And you may not care, but I promise you, it's the only one left in existence. <laughs> yeah. Because it was like this promo giveaway item from yes, the movie. And nobody cared about that movie. But the and 90s had the best swag. They I had know. money to burn, man. Oh. It was the, so good. Yeah, the best of the 90s swag was they had a, they had a dog like a stuffed animal dog in yeah. a full body cast from There's Something About Mary. That's amazing. That was pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be friends with Julia Roberts. I still do. I still think she's special. Even in that wig from Mother's Day. <laughs> God, that, that horrible wig. wig. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. What else about Finding Prince Charming? I really want to, I really love it. I'd love to watch it. Well, just... I, I, the thing is, like, I, you know, I, as a gay person that has tried to express myself creatively in front of the gay community, uh, to varying degrees of success, the problem is, and I would tell this to anyone who thinks that they want to, um, like, curry favor with a gay audience as a way to boost their career, I would just say, you know, we're the, we're the third rail of entertainment. Like, you know, we can be very powerful. We can help you. But we can also fry your ass in a hot second. If the gay community turns on you, it is over. Yeah. And so, uh, so I feel like you know you're dancing on the knife's edge by courting the gay community as a as an audience base. And the thing with Finding Prince Charming is, it is like all Finding Prince Charming is the equality we have been fighting for. Yeah. It is as terrible as The Bachelor is. Yes. And 
you know, we can't say we want equality and then be upset when we get exactly what straight people get. Yes, I think Which it's is a, a terrible dating show. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, I'm critical of the show because it's stupid television, just like The Real Housewives right. is stupid it's or The, the Bachelor is stupid. The fun of those but shows. that is the fun of it. And so I think if you make those things, you kind of have to have that sense of humor. You have to yes. say, I know I'm not making something that's going to win a Peabody. Yeah. Or I've never heard of a Peabody. But. In this case, you just have to embrace the show for what it is. Yeah. It's cheesy and it's silly and it's a TV dating show. You know, when the car- when the people on the show, I know Robert Sepulveda got upset with Jeffrey Self. He emailed him and said, you know, I'm not a character. I'm a real person. And then and, Jeffrey posted it. Yeah, and he posted it and he wrote him back and he's like, no, you're on television. You are a character. Like, yeah. that's how television works. Even if you're a real person, you are a character. Yeah. And the... The show is just, it's the, the cheesiness of it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm totally into it. But he, you can't take it personally. You no. have to know yeah. I'm making crap and people are going to love it and they're going to hate it. And that's what and I you're think getting. The gay, the gay comments about it say a lot about them. The commenter. Yeah. It, that's what I find really interesting. Like, they, it, I find it a very a window into that thing. Um, I love, I keep waiting for the night where they're going to have the Ottoman date where there's an Ottoman in the corner and you can pick one guy to go sit and talk on me to the Ottoman. <laughs> so you feel like it's that cheap. Right. <laughs> well, no, the thing for me this is... This is they- a giant refrigerator box. You can pick one guy to go into the refrigerator box with. Well, the thing that bothers me is that they keep having these dates that are clearly man-woman dates. Yeah. That were set up, like, the production company had them left over for The Bachelor, (laughs) and they never used them. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, oh, we're going to go together, and we're going to make a scent together. Yeah. Like, that thing. And I was like, this is for ladies. Yeah. And (laughs) why would two guys want to go and mix a scent together? And uh, so there's, there's stupid stuff like that, but it's just a colossally dumb show. But, I mean, I'm watching it. Yes. And I just, I wish... uh, I hope like, they fuck, like, on The Bachelor. Well, here's what I wish. I hope they have the fantasy suite. I know that uh, I know that RuPaul is the thing that is keeping Logo going. Yeah. And RuPaul won an Emmy, deservedly so. Yes. And this is the thing, is that RuPaul has managed to not only make drag mainstream, as RuPaul said in a recent episode of Drag Race, like, uh, I made drag mainstream to 100 million people. Like, you know, that was not easy to do. Yeah. It, you know. And RuPaul is a miracle worker. Yeah. Um, and but that, I also love how RuPaul is now like the moral voice of the community. Like if somebody has to come out and have a moment of silence for whatever, right? Out comes RuPaul. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, but what I like is that RuPaul does not rest on his laurels yeah. with that show. He's always looking at ways to shake things up and keep it interesting. Yeah. This All Star season is fantastic. It's fantastic. But like you think about Julie Chen. And there's a video on YouTube of Julie Chen just saying, but first, over and over again for seven and a half minutes. Yeah. And you have to watch it. It's incredible. But the thing is, is that RuPaul does not get into a Julie Chen, Chen bot, but first scenario. He does, doesn't He's always right. mixing up how he says, bring back my girls. He's always trying to find a way to surprise you and tweak it a little bit. And so this is what I wish about finding Prince Charming. It's like, I get it. It's just basically The Bachelor. It's still a step above Boy Meets Boy. It's not quite as good as playing it straight. The Fox show that got canceled before he found out who was gay and who was straight. Do you remember that show? Yeah, but I incredible. thought that, that 
Boy Meets Boy was kind of like that too. It was, but it was in reverse. Yeah. The girl was because every time. Oh, the girl was trying to figure out who's yeah, gay and straight. who was gay and straight, and it was like a communist witch hunt. Like yeah. afterwards, she would eliminate somebody, and then she would go, "Were you gay?" Like it was so <laughs> great because she, uh, her panic about it was the best part about it. And yeah. Anyway, uh, it really hasn't gotten better than that. But I wish that with Finding Prince Charming that they took a took a note from RuPaul and said. You know what? We're we're just making a cheesy dating show, but we can still do things that will be unexpected. That'll be witty, and, yeah, and a little and witty. It's and a fun. little like we can take this to another level. Yeah. And instead, what they have delivered is exactly what you all of your lowest expectation. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't blame them for that because it's as as good or bad as The Bachelor. But I just wish that there was something as gay people that was brought to it. That brought it to the next level. The way that I really do feel like RuPaul brings something else. Because Drag Race could have just been a ripoff of Top Model and Project Runway. Right. And in the first season, that was kind of, it was like, oh, it's a mashup of these things. But RuPaul and the producers have figured out a way to make Drag Race something that is entirely its own. Yeah. Where you don't think of it now as something that was born out of this place of... Having some of the DNA yeah. of, of these it, it other feels shows, like its own thing, and it feels nobody could, like, like with the Emmy. You look at those other hosts, and you go, "Oh, anyone could do what Tom Bergeron's doing." I mean, right. he's good, but anyone could do it. Nobody could do what RuPaul is doing. Yeah. Um, although I do love during the runway shows where they everything's a plan where it's ooh. Two for the turkey, or whatever. It's just like, <laughs> like everybody has those lines. Yes. They, 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 to me, they seem like that's make funnable. Like, like it's like, mm, she got her feathers at the store. Like, <laughs> I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like, everybody has a sassy thing. Yes. That I just want to be like, I want them to be like, RuPaul does this, and Michelle does that, and Carson's like, I'm sorry, I have nothing on this one. I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry. I want to believe that RuPaul is a genius and comes up with these things spontaneously. Right. But I'm 90% sure that they are either written on an index card beforehand. Sure. Like, they know what the costumes are that they're yeah. going to be wearing, and so they, like, quickly sketch them things out. But I would really love it if RuPaul was just in a, like, a voiceover suite yeah. in post-production where RuPaul just, like, has a glass of wine. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Episode. Like, a commentary, like, yeah. the kind of commentary you want. And it's just like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Two chickens fighting in a basket. Yeah, I remember that dress. Like, I wish, like, I hope that that's actually how it how it's done. I guess what I think is funny about it is that the sentences all have that same cadence, so the words don't even really seem to matter. You know, yeah. it's all like, I'll have the, do the fries go with that shake? It's yeah. like, that's a feather and it's red. Like, <laughs> I, I think it's funny. But I did hear this behind the scenes thing. They do the runway show twice. And the first time they're just watching. And then the second time it's the, you know, it's the quip-a-rama. Okay. That, that, may, that makes sense. Yeah, that does but make I sense. I do think that's really funny. Yeah. But I, I would like to believe that there's, it's like, extra zingers thrown in post-production. Oh, I'm I would, sure. I would love it if they're editing it at Rue. It's like, oh, you know what? I slept on it, and I have I have important things to say about those striped pants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got five hundred things I can say, and the ones that aren't as good, I'll just give to Michelle, and she can say them. But they're all going to be quippy, and they're all going to have that same rhythm, and we're all going to, you know, keep doing this until they <laughs> cart us off because somebody's got to save logo. 
Anyways, Derek, I think that's enough for the cards and the fun. Dennis, how could this already be over? It feels like it's gone on for days. <laughs> this was so much fun. I knew it would be. I'm so glad that you did this. I'm so glad that you come to L.A. and I get to see you. And uh, Derek and Romaine 2.0, listen, yeah. make it happen. It's good. How do people go there? It's uh, it's, it's easy. You go to our website, DerekandRomaine.com, and okay. you listen. But, okay. you know, I listen to the Dennis Anyone podcast. I love that I about love, you. I love what you do. This is, this is, this is not a publicist blowing smoke up your I ass. Know, like, exactly. Oh, no, I have to get booked on this podcast again right. because, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, no, but seriously. <laughs> I, I have I, tens of listeners. But also, I wanted to do the observation deck because... Like, it's my favorite thing. Oh, good. I love that you love it. I love the interviews. You do a great job of Thank making, you. making people interesting and teasing things out about them. But I also, I just love this, the, this, the this format th- of the observation deck. So. Well, this was born I when I did a lot of celebrity profiles for magazines. Remember what they are? Remember magazines? Yes. Kids, if you're listening, there were these <laughs> things called magazines. Anyway, I had this sheet of all of these questions that I knew would get good anecdotes. Or, like, that I knew from experience would be, like... You know, I'll, so I would take, I, I would copy a bunch of them off, and I would always have one with me for an interview, and I'd go through the list and, and pick based on the person who, what I thought I would ask them or whatever, yeah. and then I would pepper a few of those in, and I and I just found over the years that they got good stuff. So I just took all of those questions and made a card deck out of them. That's the story of the observation deck. It's fascinating. It actually, Daddy, is. tell me again about how the observation deck got its start. Yeah, but at least in your case, like the magazines will actually live on. Yeah, they will. I've Unlike been scanning other things shit online. <laughs> I, you know what? I did this thing recently where I'm trying to save room in my apartment, so I went through a lot of magazines and just tore out my pieces so sure. I could have. But you know, to throw away all those Us Weeklies and to throw, you know, it just felt like I don't know. It's so it was like seeing a ghost, you know. I did a shit ton of that stuff, and I loved it. That was my thing. Yeah. Anyways. One of, one of the three boxes that we packed up when we left SiriusXM, one of them is just magazines, gay bar rags, whatever, yeah. that have mentions of us in it, that I was like, oh, I'm going to clip these out and put them all into a scrapbook. Now they're just in a giant box. Yeah. So I guess one of these days, you know, when I have nothing to do, I'll, I'll do that. But, there like, they're all... They're not important like yours, Dennis. I didn't interview... They're not interviews with celebrities. It literally... They mostly just say, you know, come and see these old hags out at this bar. Are there, you're at a party Saturday page. Night. You're there with, you know, a bunch of bartenders and they don't have a shirt on. It's good. All right. All that's, right. That's worth saving. That's totally worth saving. <laughs> Did Next Magazine go under because everyone was posting stuff about Next Magazine? Oh, there was a whole thing. Well, the company that owns it and Frontiers and everything just, like... Laid everybody off, and oh, fuck. I don't know what they're is gonna, Frontiers going to die? I guess so. I don't know. I like Frontiers. I think they do a good job considering they probably it's probably one person butt busting their ass. Uh, they do do a good job, yeah. and I, you know, it's it's frustrating because, you know, it's another piece of LGBT media that is going away, and the I mean the, the real problem with it is. That, yes, it's great that there are stories about LGBT people that end up in the New York Times and Time Magazine or wherever else, the Washington Post. But a lot of those stories get there because they start somewhere else. Yeah. Like, there has to be a place for these kinds of smaller stories to get started. And then they bubble up to these bigger places, these mainstream places. And as great as this kind of mainstream acceptance is, if people are not watching out for these kinds of stories, if they don't have a place to start, then they're never going to, they're never going to end up there. So you think about the, 
you know, like with Romaine, with Matthew Shepard and how that became like a national story or the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. You know, the, these are stories that started as smaller local stories that then went national. And yeah. if nobody's reporting on them locally, then how are they going to get somewhere? So, you know. I, I, well, I hope Frontiers isn't dead. That would make me very sad because I like Frontiers. What a great way. Didn't we end sad the last I, time, I, I know we always do that. What Let's is that? End on Why is something so happy. Let's end on something happy. All right. I'm going to try to find What's, one last observation deck that I we know, didn't do. One more thing. <laughs> uh, I think you did a lot of these. I really did. You really did. Um, God damn it. Did I ask you what's your favorite waste of time? Or have you ever written a fan letter? Did I ask uh, you any of those? You didn't ask me about the fan letter, but I don't think I've written one. What's your most glamorous night? Uh, was the Golden Globes when I worked at Sony Pictures. This will be a happy, this is a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, it was the Golden Globes party because I was, uh, I was there and there were all these stars around. And I almost licked Brad Pitt's neck, but Gwyneth Paltrow was standing between us. It was very upsetting. He was super hot in person, wasn't he? So, like, ridiculous. And uh, this happens where there are some celebrities who, they're hot on screen. Like, it's not like Brad Pitt is ugly on screen. It's not like, oh my God, you should see how hot Steve Buscemi is in person. Like, whoa. It's not a situation like that. Like, I get it. People are like, it's Brad Pitt. Of course he's hot. No, there are people that have a certain in-person magnetism yeah. that is that film just can't even capture. It tries, but it can't. Brad Pitt is one of them. Sharon Stone is like that. Just ethereal beauty in person. You know, Marilyn Monroe is kind of the opposite. That, like, her, like, magnetism was captured on film. Billy Wilder talked about, like, you sit in a room with her, and it was like, there was no magic there. Yeah. But they, he would go in to watch the dailies, and... Like, the movie star thing was all up on the screen. Like, there was something about her that, in the process of becoming film, made her a star. But anyway, but Brad Pitt is hotter in person than he is on film. Just, it's ridiculous. So anyway, but it was just really glamorous, because all the TV people and the movie people were there, and I had a real Hollywood job, and I was in a real Hollywood place, and... You were in a suit, I bet? Yeah, I was in a tuxedo. Tuxedo. And I actually stayed overnight in the suite that night. Because uh, we had the suite for the night, and I was there late and whatever, so I like stayed over in the suite and like That's woke up in That's the morning fun. and had like a like went out on the balcony. You're like Faye Dunaway with that picture of the Oscar in the newspaper. <laughs> you know that? Yes. Of course, you know that. Yes. All right. So so yeah. So like that was really incredible, and it was. Uh, what were the know, big movies that year? Uh, that that was we were beaten by Braveheart because oh, yeah. we had Sense and Sensibility. Okay. And Braveheart was a big movie. Did you have an Emma Thompson moment? Yes, Emma Thompson was there with Kate Winslet, yeah. and it was raining. I would like to be her friend, too, Emma Thompson. Uh, yeah, she was lovely. Uh, yeah, it was, like, wet and cold, because yeah. it was January, and she didn't have a jacket, and I offered to give her my tuxedo jacket. Did you meet a producer named Lindsay Duran? Yes. Because she's one of my favorite sort of speakers. She speaks a lot around town about writing and things like that, and she was one of the producers on that movie. Yeah, I had an awkward moment with Lindsay Duran. Because I was at the studio, and I didn't have a television. That was one of my observation deck questions. Have you ever had an awkward moment with with Lindsay Lindsay Duran? Funny story, I do. (laughs) So, I was working at the movie studio, and I didn't have a television. But I would always know, like, like they would send, publicists would send over lists of stars to be on red carpets. 
Like, oh, can so-and-so attend your premiere? Yeah. And mostly it was people on their way up trying to, like, get a toehold. And so there was always this balancing act of, well, we're giving away seats in the theater for ex-stars or whatever, and are are we getting the right star mix that the press will actually cover it or care? Uh, and so every once in a while, you know, you would squeeze somebody in as a favor to a publicist or whatever else, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I always, they would send over, they would fax over lists of names and my boss was like, I don't know who any of these people are. And I'd be like, oh, this is so-and-so and they do this and they're on this show and everything. Cause I read entertainment weekly and I would just absorb it. And, uh, so I got this reputation as this sort of like savant person who had a, you know, in total recall about Hollywood things. And there was some kind of like trivia thing going on about, uh, Citizen Kane. So I got a call from Lindsay Duran's office and because uh, she was a producer on Sense and Sensibility and it's like, oh, she's a very important question for you. It's like, oh, okay. And it was um, in Citizen Kane, there are two he- they make two headlines because, you know, he runs for governor, right? And one of them is Kane wins and the other one is like voter fraud, voter fraud declared or something like that. But anyway, but she knew what one of the headlines was, but they didn't know what the other headline was. And the movie wasn't on DVD or anything. Like they couldn't get, it wasn't yeah. readily available information. This is pre-internet days when, when you needed to know something like this, it was like, how am I going to find this information yeah. without getting a copy of the movie somehow and watching it? And I didn't know the answer. <laughs> you didn't know it? You no. let her down. So like, it was like, you know, she's she producing didn't know her. It either. No, but she I should have. But I, you know, they tracked me down. I was the one person at the studio who had known, and I didn't know. But maybe if I had known, my life would have been different. Yeah. Well, Derek, I just just want to say to you that I think you're here for the right reasons. But I think that (laughs) when we were at the perfumery, (laughs) you seemed a little serious. And I like to have fun, in spite of the fact that I'm not that fun most of the time. And I think we're in the friend zone, and so I'm going to have to ask for you to give me back my tie. Oh. Well, I I guess. <laughs> <laughs> if I could just say one last thing in my defense. You, you could, because we get the shot of you yeah. on the, there's no limo, but right. on the sidewalk. I just have to say, <laughs> I've had a great time, and hey, Riley. All right, thanks again to Derek Hartley for doing the podcast. I want to give a shout-out to some folks who donated to my virtual tip jar at DennisAnyone.net. Karen Ellis, uh, we got Jarrett Lee, Michael Simon, Julie Schexnader, and Christopher French. I think they're probably fans of Romaine who did the podcast, so thank you guys. It helps me cover my expenses and keep keep this thing going. All right, so this happened... um, I saw the movie Moonlight, and I highly recommend it. It's this beautiful, haunting, romantic, lovely, artful uh, love story. So go see Moonlight. That's my tip. That's my So This Happened for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!